With more than 500 programs a year, there is never a dull moment at the Commonwealth Club. If you're a fan of this podcast and you like hearing new and provocative discussions with the most interesting people in the world, consider showing your support by joining the Commonwealth Club and ensuring that the conversations never end. Visit commonwealthclub.org special to get special rates on membership. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good morning. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club, a virtual program at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Celia Menchel, chair of the club's member-led Middle East Forum, one of many member-led forums at the Commonwealth Club doing a variety of programming. Now it's my pleasure to turn the program over to our distinguished moderator for today, Jonathan Curiel journalist and author. Thank you, Celia. And again, uh, another welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I am Jonathan Curiel, a San Francisco-based writer who's reported widely about the Middle East, and I'll be your moderator for today's program called Progress Toward Middle East Peace. A reminder to you to please put questions uh, for the Q&A that we'll have later in the program into the chat. And now it's my distinguished, uh, uh, that's my pleasure to introduce our distinguished speaker, Fadi El-Salamin. Fadi is a prominent um, activist and also a political commentator. He's also a known critic of the Palestinian National Authority um, President Mahmoud Abbas and of Hamas, which governs uh, Gaza. Recently, for his, uh, because of his pro-democracy work and his anti-corruption work, Fadi has received death threats from the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade, which is the military wing of Fatah. He's born in the West Bank, and he's a senior adjunct fellow at the Bipartisan American Security Project. He's also an, a, a businessman with experience in the Middle East, Africa, and the United States. He's also a graduate of the Seeds of Peace, which is a, a, a development organization, leadership development organization. And he's a graduate of the Johns Hopkins Advanced School of International Studies. Fadi El Salamin, welcome to the Commonwealth Club. Thank you. I'll just start briefly by bringing everybody up to date on where the Palestinian issue is today. and. The most recent issue that everyone is tackling right now is the issue of the legitimacy of the Palestinian Authority and holding democratic elections, both parliamentary and presidential. Due to the pressure exerted on the Palestinian Authority by the Trump uh, administration and the Trump peace plan, that political pressure was in the form of peace agreements signed with um, neighboring Arab countries or unneighboring Arab countries, the recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of um, Israel, um, along and the cutting of the aid um, for the Palestinian Authority, the closure of the um, PLO or the Palestinians' representative office in Washington, D.C. These were all seen as um, enough pressure for the current Palestinian president, Mahmoud Abbas, who's been in office for the past uh, 16 uh, years, since the last elections, decided to uh, move closer into uh, unity conversations with, with Hamas and then call for parliamentary and presidential elections. One, to signal to the rest of um, of the world that he is uh, now renewing his legitimacy, but also to signal to the Palestinians that in the midst of all these uh, failures, there is hope um, at the end of, um, and, and there's light at the end of, of the tunnel. Fast forward to, the, to, to today's um, events, the Palestinian president is 
projected to delay or cancel the elections and maintain his undemocratic hold onto power, um, thus creating the possibility of further um, violence or further outcry against not holding elections. Now, within the banner of holding and not holding elections, there are many, uh, within that headline, the many subtitles, uh, some have to do with the Palestinian Authority's intention to blame the Israelis for not holding the elections, um, meaning using the issue of Jerusalem as a main issue um, in order to create a pretext for uh, the authority to say to the Palestinian public, uh, because of Israel's refusal to hold elections in Jerusalem, uh, we're unable to carry out with those elections. There are many other issues which are uh, have to do with splits within Fatah. Uh, Fatah, the current ruling party, has about two or three different... Uh, it has split, basically, into three different um, factions that are running, um, or splits that are running in the parliamentary elections. So... All in all, we have a very weak, uh, corrupt, divided Palestinian um, political uh, front right now, especially uh, under the Palestinian Authority and Fatah. There's a division between Fatah and Hamas. And so this creates uh, the main issue for why we don't have um, elections and why we don't have a what would be perceived both by Israel, the United States, and the international community as um, a strong or legitimate leadership to uh, negotiate with or engage with in a, uh, peace uh, negotiations. But this is just one of the main um, obstacles. There are others. There is a very uh, right-wing Israeli government that does not see any value um, currently in negotiating, in negotiating with the Palestinians. Uh, they, they believe from what uh, we see uh, in terms of activities on the ground that basically, uh, you know, claiming the land and um, taking the land is a God-given mandate and basically no need to negotiate with a weak party like the Palestinians um, and comes under that many... Uh, many issues that Israel today is facing, both domestically and internationally, uh, criticism that has to do with human rights abuses, um, and, and obviously uh, the need to end an occupation and the need to end the control over uh, another population's life. The other main issue that I, I see as um, serves as a, an impediment for not moving forward with uh, a serious peace conversation between the Palestinians and the Israelis is um, so far the lack of interest in the current U.S. administration. Um, lack of interest meaning not willing to commit too much political capital uh, between the Palestinians and the Israelis and then face failure like other administrations uh, before it. So if you notice the current Biden administration, what they're doing uh, is in my view, is the bare minimum, which is resumption of aid, um, signaling to the Palestinians that they will recognize a two-state solution, but uh, not doing much beyond that in terms of pressuring the two parties to come together or uh, get into any sort of peace negotiations at this stage. 
So that's, in summary, the the three different reasons, issues that I see, um, you know, in the face of any real uh, progress uh, towards a, a peace between the Palestinians and Israelis today. I'll stop here and, and, and hopefully take questions or open it up for discussion so that we can cover the other issues that um, I didn't allude to. Thank you. Yeah, th th thank, thank you, Fadi. Um, let, let's, let's start with this question. Uh, I, I mentioned that you've received death threats. And um, if you could talk about, as best you can, what those threats were, and in a way, how this is emblematic of a breakdown um, in the political process in the Palestinian territories in Palestine, and also maybe what it says about um, relations with Israel, um, you, you, you've been called, as other people have been called in your position, um, a tool of the Israeli government, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so, you know, again, if you could speak to the threats that you've received and what, what it means, now, of course, to you personally, but also what it says about the political process. The, just to give some, people some background on, on my work. So for the past 10 years, I've been focusing on exposing corruption within the Palestinian Authority um, and human rights abuses. I've been doing this as a Palestinian, as someone who believes that we deserve better governance. And as someone who, uh, living at the time in the United States, uh, could afford to do this far away from the reach of the Palestinian Authority, far away from the reach of um, an authoritarian figure like Mahmoud Abbas. Last month, basically, I came to, here, I came to visit the, uh, my family and, and the Palestinian territories. Uh, I came to visit Hebron. And after my visit, um, the next day, basically, Al-Aqsa Martyr's Brigade issued an explicit death threat um, because of my anti-corruption work and my pro-democracy work. The death threat um, obviously was taken very seriously by me, by the United States, by the State Department, um, but was not in any way condemned or uh, dealt with by the Palestinian Authority. They've done the classical uh, move, which is, oh, we had no idea, we didn't know about it, which is, um, you know, knowing what um, I know or what, you know, most serious people who deal with this part of the world know, there's no way uh, a threat like this would be issued without uh, the Palestinian Authority knowing about it without uh, Fatah knowing about it, uh, especially uh, considering the party that issued it. What does this mean? What it means is you have a Palestinian president who's been in power for the past 16 years, refuses in any way to uh, crack down on corruption, refuses to share power, refuses to allow for a democratic process to take place, uh, not a fan of elections, not a fan of being told uh, this is wrong or this is right. Uh, basically, it's his way or the highway. I'm not the only person that he's dealt with in this manner. Uh, prior to my death threat, one of the Fatah Central Committee members, a guy by the name of Nasser al-Qudwa, who is now heading the Barghouti list in the parliamentary elections, was expelled from Fatah Central Committee, was threatened, and I have it on very good authority from individuals who were in the meeting with Mahmoud Abbas that Mahmoud Abbas told Nasser al-Qudwa 
point blank, if you run in this election against me, I will shoot you. Uh, so he made death threats very explicitly to other people um, face to face. Maybe in my case, it was a little harder since I'm a, a U.S. citizen. And so he needed to use the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade uh, to make that threat clear. So we have a very serious issue. If we're going to join the uh, fast-moving uh, train in the region, uh, which is creating alliances around security, around economy, um, and, and so on, we need a new leadership. We need a new leadership also in the Palestinian arena to address the many crises that are facing the Palestinians, poverty, unemployment, uh, human rights issues, uh, anti-corruption and, and corruption. So for all sorts of reasons, we really need elections and, and we need the international community to push for these elections to happen. Well, um, yeah, and you're, you're, you're referencing the elections that are supposed to take place, both parliamentary and presidential. As you, as you say, Mahmoud Abbas has been in power since 2005, so 16 years really without the last election. In the last election, um, Hamas... Um, was vying for power, and that's what led to the very deep political split between Hamas and Fatah. Hamas is now in control of Gaza, of course, um, th but there's a lot of enmity between Hamas and um, Mahmoud Abbas and Fatah. Um, this election, in a sense, you know, Mahmoud Abbas called for elections, you know, on the, on as Biden assumed the U.S. presidency. Do you think that was a miscalculation? And if so, why? I mean, why, why would uh, Mahmoud Abbas cling to power when he knows that there are lots of Palestinian factions who would like to replace him and who see him, if not as corrupt as um, you know, borderline incompetent in terms of running running the territories? I believe you're correct. It was a um, it was political maneuvering on his part. It was a miscalculation. I don't think he he. Uh, believed that Hamas would agree to the elections and therefore he would always have a, a pretext that um, this is uh, a leader who's been in power for 15, for 15 years but is trying to hold elections but is unable because of the political division and because of Hamas's refusal. What turned out to be uh, a surprise for him and everybody else that Hamas um, agreed um, even though I personally believe that they're not really um, very happy about the current elections and they themselves uh, do not want elections, but they don't want to be viewed as the reason why there is no elections. So the elections would be a danger to both Hamas and Anabas. Hamas suffered uh, for the past 16 years um, a, a loss in credibility, a loss in um, in popularity among Palestinians because of their governance and their governance style for the past uh, years in, in Gaza. So they're not as popular as they were in previous elections, and they know this. And yet they do have certain technical advantages. They are uh, united in a list. They have uh, one voice. They have one uh, part, you know, one list that they presented for parliamentary elections. And therefore, anyone who... Um, would vote uh, against Fatah, or would end up likely voting for their for their list, and and that might help them. The fact that they're not divided, the fact that they uh, still have some unity among them uh, as a movement, uh, works to the to their advantage. Uh, that is not to say that they are uh, 
liked or more popular. In fact, if Fatah, uh, and that's a big if, uh, did not have these splits, did not have Abbas um, wanting to hug and hold power for himself, um, and, and there was a united Fatah uh, front, uh, I, I think they would do much better than, than Hamas, uh, especially in Gaza, especially in Gaza, uh, where people have tried and uh, rejected Hamas's rule for the past uh, 16 years. So you grew up you grew up in the West Bank, and at the time you were growing up, it was Yasser Arafat who was um, the, the the major figure in Palestinian politics, and a lot a lot of people saw in Arafat. Well, they they saw a lot of things. Um, they saw idealism. Some people saw terrorism. Some people, when he was alive, they just they did describe him as well as being corrupt. Um, I, I would I would like to ask you um, about your personal, in a sense, your personal um, journey, as it were, your political journey. Growing up, you know, did you have the idealism that Yasser Arafat and um, the Palestinian National Authority that they could, you know, steward in a Palestinian state, a bona fide Palestinian state, with as much territory as possible pre nineteen sixty seven, um, and that that was that was a possibility. And then somehow, um, as as you you know, became politically aware. And as you went to Johns Hopkins and elsewhere, you know, your idealism maybe waned. What what, what caused you, in a sense, to um, do the anti-corruption work you're doing now, where you're very public, you're, you're receiving death threats, and you are one of the people who is um, seen as um, a kind of, a you know, major, major critic of uh, Abbas? You know, I grew up in the West Bank until I was about 14, 15 years um, old. And at the time, I don't think I was uh, fully aware of the different political uh, moving, fast-moving uh, tracks within Palestinian society. The image of Arafat at the time uh, was that of positive, was that of a, a unifying leader who was uh, working towards um a Palestinian state towards improving Palestinian uh, society. Uh, I became aware and, and was able to meet Arafat because of the Seeds of Peace program, where we would sit down with Israelis and discuss the political reality. Um, he would be meeting with uh, Rabin, with uh, Shimon Peres, with Bill Clinton at the time. So the atmosphere was that of hope, peace, um, and there was a future to look forward to. Then, obviously, Second Intifada happened, uh, and, and, and things um, things slowly begin begin to kind of sink in, and, and reality um, hit. And obviously, um, that's that's not what happened. For me, the, the transformational change became when um, when I lived in the United States, and I um, became became exposed to the idea of having a democracy, having checks and balances, having accountability for politicians, uh, making sure that they don't have absolute power, uh, that at the end of the day, their ultimate job is to represent the public and be accountable and um, for the public. And, and um, th that's, I believe, is the foundation for my belief system, for my uh, anti-corruption work, for my pro-democracy work. The my background, I, I came from a poor family. Uh, I'm the oldest of nine children, and growing up, I assumed that um, all Palestinians were the same. We were 
um, we were equal in misery, as 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 we say. Um, I, I've come to find out that that is not the case. They are there are very very corrupt um, Palestinian politicians that take advantage of uh, Palestinians uh, that take advantage of uh, you know the, the Palestinian issue, the Palestinian cause, and they are an impediment to uh, and a bright future for Palestinians, um, both in the West Bank and Gaza and, and, and elsewhere. And so it, I, I've decided that I, I, you know, and these are people that I, I met, I engaged um, in, in conversations. And when I would compare myself to, uh, to my friends that I, I grew up with um, in Hebron, uh, some were either uh, imprisoned or killed. Uh, some are unemployed to this day, are unable to secure jobs, uh, either with, uh, within the Palestinian economy or, or outside. And that's where you have to, you really reach a crossroad. You have to make a decision. Do you um, just accept this and move forward? Or do you uh, put up a fight against it and try to change that reality um, and, and then bring a uh, you know, pay back, bring back some sort of uh, contribution to the place where you uh, came from and uh, try to rebuild things uh, right way. And, and I believe that's what I'm doing. So go, going back to the early 2000s, tw 20 years ago, I, I was a reporter then for the San Francisco Chronicle. And I remember interviewing then um, uh, Prime Minister Ehud Barak, and at the time, what was being floated was this idea that in return for um, a return to pre-67 borders, that a lot of Arab countries, Saudi Arabia, um, you know, Jordan, uh, not Jordan, but uh, Egypt and elsewhere, that they would recognize Israel um, in a much more formal way than, than they had done. And so th this, this was the carrot that was being dangled then in return for a comprehensive two-state two solution. Um, Israel, um, uh, you know, w would give up these territories, in, in, you know, in, in return for Arab recognition. Arab recognition has happened, uh, especially under the Trump administration. The Abraham Accords, we have the UAE recognizing and formalizing relations with Israel. We have other Arab countries on the brink of doing that, possibly even Saudi Arabia. That's been a huge change um, for Palestinians because that was one of their, as, as, as if you were aces in the hole. Um, can you talk about that and how, in a sense, the Palestinian um, advantage, as it were, in that regard, has changed considerably uh, in the last several years? Yes, what you're referring to is the Arab Peace Initiative, which is peace with the Arab and Muslim world in return for peace with the Palestinians and creating a peace, uh, a, a Palestinian state that lives in peace side by side with the state of Israel. Um, that obviously no longer is on the table. Uh, I believe the recent uh, agreements uh, between Israel and some of the um, Arab countries, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Morocco, Sudan, and others, it reflects the current reality more than anything else. There is a serious, uh, deep security alliance between Israel and those countries. Uh, facing external threats, Iran being chief among those uh, threats, um, others, uh, Islamic um, fundamentalism, terrorism, it, it, regardless of how they, they define it or identify it. On top of this, there is a, an economic alliance that is growing, and I personally 
um, see the division within the Palestinian leadership. I also see the incompetence uh, within the Palestinian uh, leadership as a contributing factor to this uh, to, to this uh, reality that the Palestinians have to uh, to deal with. Um, they didn't know how to deal with Trump. They didn't know how to approach Trump. Uh, but also they relied heavily on um, what they call our Arab depth, our strategic Arab depth. Um, you know, these are Arab countries that are on the brink of war with Iran. Uh, they they face an existential threat, and they see uh, a serious value in engaging with, with Israel. Uh, they've tried to engage with this current Palestinian leader, uh, but he before there was uh, normalization or Abraham Accords between uh, some of these countries and, and Israel, there were no relationships between, for example, the United Arab Emirates and the Palestinian Authority, um, I believe that's an issue that Abbas should own. It's uh, entirely his um, his doing, and so he, he in this this didn't just happen overnight. This was the uh, basically you know this was the culmination of certain, you know several works. Um, one of them was Abbas's damaging the Arab-Palestinian relationships. Um, the Arabs also seeing very little hope in terms of uh, any progress with this uh, current leadership, and so they moved on. And um, th that's an issue that, you know, initially Abbas was able to export this crisis and say, you know, oh, we feel we were stabbed in the back, we feel this was a betrayal, but feelings uh, are, are a thing, and then reality is uh, entirely something different. As a leader, what will you do for your people who have been now sidelined um, and uh, marginalized and uh, largely because of, 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 of your work? He doesn't have a good answer. And so, um, and this, on top of that, does not want to hold elections. And so this is a very, um, it's a very sticky issue. Um, I, I do hope that once we have elections, we'll have a better leadership that is able to handle this issue in a smarter and, and more creative way than has been done. Um, yeah, th th thank you for that. I want to remind our audience that we're uh, talking with Fadi El Salamin, um, and this is a program uh, called uh, Progress Toward Middle East Peace. Um, we are we are taking questions from from um, people online in the audience and. Um, one question relates, actually, I think it relates to what you went through. You talked about Seeds of Peace, which, as as you've mentioned, is a um, leadership development organization. Um, and the, this question is, how should community leaders promote cross-culture uh, connectivity? I, I, I'm, a, I'm extrapolating and, and, and saying that that means how can Palestinians and Israelis get better, you know, better get along? Uh, what are the political um, ways or personal ways, cultural ways? Um, that Palestinians and Israelis can can better understand each other. Um, yeah, if you if you could talk about um, th that that um, that idea about cross cultural connectivity. Look, Palestinians and Israelis are very. There is a, you know, there are deep links, right? They're they are there, but they need to be obviously cultivated. The political environment prohibits this. 
Um, and and it, it's a fascinating issue because um, if activities are happening where Palestinians and Israelis are engaging in, in dialogue or uh, promoting uh, cross-cultural uh, events, you'll find that those who are um, attacking them or, or trying to prevent them are the Palestinian Authority so that they can keep a monopoly on this issue. Nothing could should happen or should be allowed to happen without their involvement and their, um, and their role. Um, and so they, they, they don't allow it. It's not easy. That, that being said, it's not easy in the current political environment um, because um, it, it's often used as political, uh, you know, as you, it's often used as fuel for political arguments and, 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 and political discourse. Um, it, it's not an issue that, um, you know, there's an agreement on where people could say, yes, this is important. We should support it. Let, um, let people to people connections grow um, in these terms. So it's an important, it's a very good question, but unless we do have a fundamental change um, in the current leadership, um, a change that signals hope um, for the Palestinian people, um, it's going to be very difficult. Yeah, I, I just want to say, um, you know, a follow up to, to that question. Um, I, I've, I've seen film, um, Israeli made film, uh, talking about the, the, the definitive connections between Palestinians and Israelis. And there was, of course, this TV series called Arab Labor, which came out, I want to say, about 10 years ago, uh, which was a comedy in a sense, but really well received uh, in Israel, not only among Arabs, but also, um, you know, Jews in Israel. Um, so, um, that, that, that's a cultural to me, like a cultural, um, you know, signifier of what could, what could possibly be, um, can, can you talk about, um, you know, uh, pushback, uh, from your work among Palestinians, if there, if there is, um, who are not say, uh, extremists who are not part of the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade, are you, do you get pushback from Palestinians who say, um, Palestinians should focus more on Israeli policies, um, entrenched Israeli policies, settlements and so forth, that have also pushed Mahmoud Abbas into a corner. Um, and, and you know, I guess the argument could be like, what, why aren't you focusing more as much on that as you are on um, your anti-corruption work? So the let me just give you um, an overview of the past 10 years, when we first started talking about corruption within the Palestinian Authority, the initial reaction was, Fadi, uh, this is normal. Of course, a minister should have uh, a car, a company, a palace, a fancy car, right? Um, what do you want them to do? Ride in the same bus as everybody else? Um, this is a minister. Then over three, four years later, you'd see that slowly, um, others are joining in, in the conversation and the perception and the mindset towards corruption is not uh, that of this is normal. Uh, and fast forward to today, uh, I'm probably the least person that criticizes or talks about corruption compared to everybody else. Over 80% of uh, Palestinian youth believe that there is serious corruption within the Palestinian Authority um, and, and it needs to be addressed. The, the the pushback is no longer about why 
um, initially there was a pushback, but t today, no, quite the contrary. In, in fact, the only people who are pushing back against me are um, Abbas and those around him and, and his circle because they've seen the effects of my work on theirs um, and, and on their, um, you know, obviously on, on them and on the public's perception of them. Um, now, the their failures are seen not just on the political file, uh, not just in the financial file, but let's talk about Corona, for example. You're talking about corruption in distribution of vaccines. Um, the you know the arrival of vaccines, 200 or 500 shots, uh, were taken immediately, and instead of being distributed to those who needed most, it went to the president and his first circle, and. If the mindset was not so aware, was not so ready to look for signs of corruption, to ask questions, uh, the we would not have had this issue. So the sensitivity to corruption has become has become um, so high that it that the Palestinians now question every um, everybody everything. Um, they ask question about every budget item. Uh, every project that's announced, and that's a healthy society. That is the norm. That's what should happen. Um, yet, in, in order to transform this mindset, in order to transform this um, th this reality into practice, um, we need elections. We need to have those who are asking questions in parliament, those who are asking, are asking questions in the anti-corruption commission uh, and are able to try and, and, and hold people accountable. But they've been blocked so far because of the monopoly on um, on power by, by Abbas. So to answer your question today, no. In fact, the country, I, I, when, um, when I run into people, either they, they wanna, uh, they're happy to meet me or they want to take a picture or they're, they're really excited about um what what, I, we, what we've been doing and you know jonathan it, it's it's a very serious deep uh network of uh individuals very dedicated individuals with inside the palestinian institutions that really care about exposing the corruption and and want um and wanted to to end and they want to crack down on it so th this is not um, this is not something that is uh, not welcomed by the public. It, it's quite the, the contrary. It's very welcomed by the Palestinian public. Now, um, the, why, why don't we talk about the Israeli occupation as a... We do talk about it, but it's not the priority. The, almost everybody, almost every organization here and there makes that their main focus, their main priority. But... Um, I've chose this issue, this area, because I believe this is where I could make a change. This is where I could make uh, some progress in, in Palestinian lives. And that's why I've focused on it. Well, um, you, you, you are in your 30s, I believe. Um, and and um, in the United States, there's a lot of focus on the next generation of leaders. Um, uh, who who have been elected to Congress? Uh, a, a lot of pe people of color, uh, uh, women, um, and so um, we mentioned that Mahmoud Abbas is eighty five. Um, there are P Palestinian leaders, other Palestinian leaders who are vying, um, you know, uh, politically speaking, um, who are well known uh, within Palestinian society. Maybe not as known here in the United States, but certainly well known within Palestine. I'm wondering if you have been um, asked by anyone 
to join any political circles. If you, for example, have even asked to run, to consider a future political run, maybe not now, but maybe, you know, a decade from now. The political atmosphere right now, it's not the same as the United States, um, where they see a potential and then um, others will try to invest in that potential and harness it. Uh, here, it's very crowded. Uh, they see a, a potential that is a that's seen as a potential threat, and it's uh, you know it, all efforts are, are are garnered to push it away. For for me, I I have been approached to run in in parliamentary lists. I have been approached to run in um, other elections, uh, but I just don't believe right now uh, that Abbas is actually going to allow for Palestinian elections. And, and until I see a serious um, commitment to holding the elections, uh, until I see um, guarantees from the international community to actually push forward and make sure that the next generation of Palestinian leaders, um, like you said, emerge both men and women. With, with Palestinian women are incredible uh, and they should be allowed um, to have a much bigger, more serious role in Palestinian politics. But unfortunately, I don't I don't see that happening under the current leadership. So unless we unless there's a serious push towards this, um, we're really stuck with the same old, same old. And and frankly, um, it, it is uh, creating a fatigue effect in, locally, internationally, and that's why you see um, you know the most uh, countries are willing to do are maybe uh, give aid uh, to a certain extent, just keep this issue in the background and, and away because they don't see any serious solutions or any creative ideas coming from um, new blood or fresh blood. They just, none of this is being presented to um, serious players to engage and it's creating um, a serious rift between the Palestinians and, and the rest of the world. Uh, you you mentioned the pandemic earlier, and we have a question from the audience about um, whether the pan excuse me whether the pandemic can provide transparency into how the Palestinian National Authority is accountable to to the public. Um, you, you talked about these um, vaccines uh, that have gone to higher ups rather than a more general population that might be in in, in great greater need. Um, what 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 is what is the transparency around that? What what are people um, learning and knowing about that vaccines and the vaccination program there in Palestine. So it, it's a very serious issue, and, and, and in fact, it's a great case study to to take a look at because it does expose the Palestinian Authority on many fronts. For example, when the first dosage of Palest of vaccines arrived, um, the the vaccines were distributed. Uh, for the Palestinian leader, his circle, and in fact, their relatives in Jordan were able to get that vaccine shipped to them before um, others with critical need were able to get it um, in uh, in the West Bank and Gaza. That's one. Two, to this day, not everybody's getting the vaccine. Three, um, I think that this was a story that was covered widely in, in the international press. The Palestinian prime minister went on public TV and said, we have vaccinated 100,000 Palestinians who are crossing into Israel. Um, at which point the first visceral reaction came from the Palestinian public that said, you really are lying to us in a very blatant way. 
we were vaccinated by Israeli medical workers at the checkpoints. This had nothing to do with the Palestinian Authority. And so you're talking about deceiving the public, uh, misusing funds, misusing uh, resources, complete disregard uh, for uh, the those who are less uh, fortunate, for the poor, for um, disadvantaged, and complete, you know, acting with immunity. You, you, you don't, if you know that there there will be consequences to an issue that is so known, so public, like. Um, the issue of who's administering the vaccination, you won't come forward as a FATA Central Committee member, as a prime minister, and make those allegations, um, and, and then face no back, you know, face no consequences whatsoever, regardless of the backlash from the public. Uh, and so it's really fascinating to me. Um, but but yes, it's reminiscent of the pandemic corruption, is the deep corruption within the Palestinian Authority. Um, you, you were in your 30s. Um, I, there are Palestinians. Uh, let, let me just say that there's a great Palestinian diaspora. Um, uh, there's a Palestinian di diaspora that you can find in Lebanon. I remember reporting from Lebanon um, about 20 years ago, um, going to refugee camps that have been there since the 1940s. You've had generations of Palestinians grow up. And so you have grandchildren of refugees who are still in these camps, um, still makeshift camps in Lebanon and elsewhere. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering, you know, this old, the, this, the Palestinian diaspora, which, which is, you know, let's just say it's, you know, easily millions of people around the world. Um, what, what is your experience with them? And do, do, in a sense, do you have a connection to other generations who are, um, urging you to do your work or is there among older Palestinians a certain, um, you know, as you say, um, you know, th threshold that they reach, well, you know, th there's no progress at all possible. No, I, I think the diaspora or the Palestinian diaspora has always been very important for the Palestinian issue. They've been the backbone, the engine for support uh, for those living on the inside. Um, I, I have a very good relationship with the diaspora, especially the community in the United States and um recently developed also great relationships with the Palestinian communities uh, across Europe um, and, and in the Middle East. They, there's a split between those who are obviously opposed to the Palestinian Authority and those who uh, believe that the priority should remain towards um, the larger Palestinian issue, which is the Israeli occupation and, and trying to uh, get through that first, then worry about um, you know, about local issues like corruption and um, elections and democracy uh, within, uh, you know, but, but it's a debate that exists among the diaspora. I think it's a healthy debate, but it doesn't, you know, my experience, I, I could sit with the Palestinian American in the United States and, and have this debate, have this conversation, and it's normal because we're, we're both ex exposed to, um, you know, the, what a democracy is. The issue is you're not even allowed to discuss or um, have this conversation inside the Palestinian territories. If you so much as make a Facebook post uh, criticizing the government, you will be arrested the next day. You will be put in jail for 15 or sometimes 30 days by the Palestinian Authority for so much as criticizing uh, the president. For example, uh, taking an extravagant trip on a $50 million private jet to 
country X with his grandchildren or with his family members. If you so much as mention this, you you will be arrested for 15, 30 days with no charge. And it could be even more. So it, it, it's not, you know, the, the, the diaspora, I, I, I feel, I understand and I feel the pain um, and, and the, the split and the priorities, um, but, the, you know, it's not the same. You can have a civilized, wonderful conversation with members of the diaspora uh, versus you're not even allowed to have a conversation or question the legitimacy of, of the authority on the inside. Um, you know, some of the words that come to mind when, when, I, when I think about the situation in Pal Palestine is, is tragedy, tragedy. Um, you know, again, we, we talked about the hope that a lot of people had for a two-state solution. Um, we, t uh, we could talk about the hope that people had when Mahmoud Abbas ascended to political power. Can, can you talk about the why behind Mahmoud Abbas, about why he became so entrenched and why he would um, not hold election for 15 years? Was Is this a kind of um, odd metamorphosis of Mahmoud Abbas? Or in a sense, looking back, is this something that one could see in his leanings before he you know, took, took over, politically speaking, for Yasser Arafat? It's a very good question. I, I actually was one of those hopeful people when he took power that um, now we could have democratic institutions, we will have elections every four years, we've moved away from the traditional Palestinian uh, leader, which was the, you know, the figure, the, the leader, meaning Arafat, to now the, um, you know, uh, institutional type of uh, of a leader where uh, elections would be held every four years and, and so on. Um, what I believe we missed or overlooked was Abbas's, um, you know, Abbas grew up in Syria, grew up uh, afterwards and, and lived in Russia. Um, it was, you know, he had his PhD there. I, I really think he's heavily influenced by, um, by that type of leadership. And um, down the road, when uh, he had the chance, he eliminated the parliament Basically, uh, now he rules by decree, meaning almost like a king. In fact, exactly like a king, not almost like a king. He rules by decree. So whatever he decides is law becomes law the next day and does not like or accept any type of challenge to, to his leadership. So was he always like this? I believe yes, but he knew that he couldn't exert that type of style of leadership um, and, and and still get to where he is today. So he 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 played this um, you know nice grandfather. You know he has a famous line when he when he says it. Most people say, "Oh, what an amazing man!" Uh, and then once they come to realize what it means, um, it, it, it's very, it is a tragedy. So he says. This, and he's been saying this since 2005. I will not run for another presidential term. I am only here for one term, and that's it. Later on, we've come to believe that what that means is there will be no presidential elections as long as I, I'm alive. Um, and that is the reality. So he's very clever, very creative with, with, with the way, he, with his messaging, but um, deep down is a very uh, authoritative, authoritative um, you know, he's a dictator with with really um, with an iron fist, brutal towards those who criticize him or question his his uh, style of leadership and um, 
So I, I'm not surprised that he's not happy with elections, doesn't want elections, shut, you know, he shut down the parliament, but also shut down the judicial system. It's unbelievable. Basically put a judicial system that supports his presidential decrees. And so you've got a president who's the judge, the parliament, um, the executive, the legislative, and so on. And uh, only two other people that come to mind when I think of this are, um, you know, Vladimir Putin and Bashar al-Assad. Um, and these are people that Abbas was very close to. Yeah, and uh, those those names sent a chill uh, in me, fr fr frankly. Um, uh, so um, we, we we have about five ten, ten minutes left. Um, there there are lots lots of questions to ask. Um, one one of them is yeah, uh, Mahmoud Abbas is eighty five. His health, uh, you know, it's it's probably to use the expression "kumsi um, kumsa." Are there are people though, in a sense, preparing for his departure, even though he may today announce, um, you know, the, um, the um, halt to to elections? But are are there, in a sense, as far as you know, uh, moves being made to, um, in a sense, prepare for uh, Mahmoud Abbas's eventual de departure, whether it's you know next year, five years from now? Um, is is there, in a sense, a kind of you know underground political um, you know, movement happening that, that, you know, we, we don't know about, we don't hear about, we don't hear about. There is, there is, and it's in fact, here's my worry. If we don't have elections, I believe that the Palestinians are heading towards violence to change the political system. And that is, that's the danger because the violence could overspell. It could be uh, redirected towards Israel. It could be redirected uh, towards others. And so, you know, more than two-thirds of Palestinians, um, according to recent polls, want Abbas to leave, want him to step down. So th there's no dispute that people want him out and they don't want him to stay in power. The question is, how will he be replaced? Um, if it's democratic, uh, free and fair elections, then obviously we have a clear path towards uh, transition in power. If it is not, and that is what Abbas is trying to do to prevent that path from... Um, taking place, then what I see, what I hear um, will be, um, will lead to violence. You have uh, members of the Fatah Central Committee acquiring uh, weapons. You have others, obviously armed groups and factions in the West Bank um, who will basically try to take matters into their own hands and see how they could settle this, um, this score without elections. So it's a very slippery slope, very dangerous alternative. Um, and I think the cost will be very high. Um, and so, again, I cannot underscore how important it is for uh, the international community, for those who have influence, to allow for uh, democratic Palestinian elections to take place. We we ha we have an election that may be canceled today, um, may, may, maybe tomorrow. Um, from what I'm reading, um, and you've talked about this as well, um, the pretext, as it were, may be that um, Palestinians in East Jerusalem may not be able to vote in the election, and so Mahmoud Abbas is is has sent a, an overture to Israel to allow that to happen. Israel has. Uh, for now, um, maybe maybe ignores the wrong word, but it, it ignored it. Um, East Jerusalem, of course, is a main issue, a huge issue. 
before 1967, it was part of uh, Palestine, and now it's it's occupied by Israel. How 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 significant and important is East Jerusalem in this context, in the political context, and also in the context of violence, potential violence, as you as you're uh, referencing? Look, Jerusalem obviously is very important for the Palestinians. It's important for the Palestinian cause. Uh, the symbolism. You know, there's no way to uh, to describe it uh, aside from it's extremely, extremely important. Yet, what um, what is being done uh, today uh, in terms of political theater by Mahmoud Abbas and his political um, operatives is to create this image that no elections could ever happen without holding elections in Jerusalem. No elections, you know, they've gone yesterday, one of the central members committee made this statement, no elections could ever happen as long as there is an Israeli occupation. And so basically the idea and the theme that they're pushing out, no elections, regardless of what the pretext is. But here they're trying to give us two two, uh, good reasons uh, from their standpoint, which is one, Jerusalem, two, the occupation. Um, And that's what I don't buy. That's what I don't think that... I, I my belief is that I don't the Palestinian public is not buying, not accepting. They want elections because they are there's a eagerness, there's a a deep, a overwhelming majority that wants to um, change this political system, push out Abbas and those around him for all types of reasons: political failure, corruption, abuse of human rights, cracking down on um, all forms of dissent, uh, limiting freedoms, and and so on. But um, and so using Jerusalem as a, as a pretext is not even believed or, or accepted by the Palestinian public, let alone uh, the international community. Uh, there are ways around it. You know, um, I understand the political importance of holding elections in Jerusalem, but there, there have been actually options that were offered. One of them was you could have the ballot boxes at, Palis- at international um consulates that are willing to 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 hold the the ballot boxes you could have ballot boxes at the post office that will accept uh people's votes so there are many creative options but the palestinian authority has been saying no and and it's obvious why the you know the elections will mean the end of the political life for abbas and his entire um system and they will have to face consequences and, and again they don't want to do that. They, they're trying to stay in power as long as they can. Um, let's, let's go to uh, what may be the last question uh, for, for, for you. It's from an audience member. Um, the question is, Palestinians have prospered and provided leadership and contributed to global institutions. When will this be allowed to translate in Palestine? And, um, you know, that's a, that's a good question for you to answer because of your um, life and, and studies in the United States. And, and right now you're you're uh, in the West Bank, but uh, if, you, if you could talk about that, perhaps as the last last question for you. Last question for you. It's a great question. You know, President Bill Clinton will often say to his Palestinian friends, every Palestinian friend of mine is either a professor or a millionaire. And I, I believe there's a certain truth into this. You know, the Palestinians are, are obviously a bright, uh, incredible people. They've done amazingly well uh, when the environment allows for them to do well. and um, that's a that's a, an amazing and a sad question at the same time because um, obviously the first place where we should be uh, doing amazingly well is Palestine is the Palestinian 
uh, homeland. But uh, again, it's almost uh, similar to the Lebanese diaspora. If you notice, uh, many amazing, incredible Lebanese are doing amazingly well all over the world, um, except in Lebanon. And so the political environment is really suffocating for uh, those with thriving potential, those with incredible ideas. And, and it's not just politics. It's not just business. It's science. Um, and it's because because the system doesn't allow for... Um, does not allow for competent people to thrive the, or, or rise through the, the ranks. Uh, it's a corrupt system that will hire based on relationships, based on um, not based on merits, but more you know nepotism and, and so on. So unless we change that system and create the perfect environment where uh, if you're a talented Palestinian man or woman, uh, you're able to thrive, you're able to rise through the ranks, you're able to be in the right place and, and able to contribute to society positively, um, unless that happens, we will have what we're having today where you could thrive in other systems that allow you, right, a democracy uh, in the United States or Europe, um, but not at, at, not at, not at home. Um, so let me, in the few seconds we have left, I know you're in the West Bank. I mean, how, how, how long will you be there and when, you know, what's your situation there right now? My situation is still very dangerous. I, I you know, I'm trying to keep a very low profile. I'm not, um, obviously, uh, saying exactly in which town I'm staying. Um, but I, 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 I am hopeful that, um, the pressure will continue to mount on, on Abbas and others to condemn the death threat. Um, I could have easily, obviously, flown back to the United States. The State Department offered to do that. Um, but I, I think I'm known to put up a fight regardless of the consequences. And I, I don't want to give Abbas uh, an easy win. Um, I, I'm, so I'm, I'm staying here as long as I need to stay. Well, Fadi El Salamin, we want to thank you so much for your time here at the Commonwealth Club. We want to thank our audiences as well for um, tuning in and also those who may be listening to this on podcast and later on. Um, and uh, I've been Jonathan Curiel, and it's been my pleasure. Um, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, which is celebrating over 116 years of enlightened discussion, is adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.